Hello, strangers, and welcome to the Strange Horizons podcast for November 9th, 2015. I'm your host and fearless leader, Anae L.A. For this week's story, we have Liminal Grid by Jamie Goh. Jamie is a writer of fiction, poetry, and academies. She is currently a PhD candidate at UC Riverside, the research process of which she occasionally chronicles at her post-colonialist steampunk blog, Silver Goggles. She tweets a lot as at J-H-A-M-E-I-A. Now, settle in. Let's begin. Liminal Grid by Jamie Goh On the side of the hill at the edge of the town, Bandar Ayurputa, is a failed housing development project, formerly called Fa'alim Heights. Four blocks stand 14 stories tall in a quasi-hexagon shape, and their windows bristle with tall lalang and the branches of trees that have taken over the rooms inside. If you squint, you can make out the courtyard between hill and blocks, but the view is obscured by the vines overhanging the base of the buildings. The walls used to be pink, but they are now gray from grime and moss, wherever they have not been covered by do-it-do-it and other creepers. The blocks were built as luxury condos for rich retirees who wanted to pretend to return to rural life, but there were no buyers, and the development company went bankrupt. The actual rural people sighed in relief and went about planting their rice and tending their crops. The suburban people also went on going to work in the shop houses nearby, or commuting to the city, or, because jobs are scarce and pay too little for survival, tending their own home businesses. Because you live there, in that condemned building, you know that the plants in the building are carefully planted in a low-maintenance edible garden. What looks like the lawn is actually sarai. The branches of the trees hang with fruit that feed the local fauna on the outside, but inside they are covered with discarded CDs to confuse the birds. There are window boxes on the inside growing leafy vegetables, and chickens are allowed to run free to keep down pests. The courtyard used to have a pool. It still sort of does, but it is home to a crop of water plants. Because you furnished the place... You know that the vines from the ceiling of the ground floor hide wires that provide electricity and connections to two local internet service providers' networks. You know that there are waste up the building besides the concrete staircase cracking up from tree roots, and you know there is a tunnel system into the hill, natural tunnels with some man-made modifications. At the base of the hill there is a waterfall that provides hydroelectricity for the buildings and local residents, as well as a place to wash clothing and keep an eye on playing children at the same time. You moved here to Bandar Ayaputa several years ago, and the farmers taught you everything you know about planting crops. They made you live with them, work in the balukard with them, shows you how difficult and exhausting the whole farming jig is. In return, you let them attach their children to you as you go about your daily business, building things in the complex. You seek out solutions for their resource problems, doubling every year as the government keeps siphoning food and finances from them, cutting off electricity and water arbitrarily. 
You act as the local representative for their financial and legal interests. You act it because you are not, not really. Outside of Falem Heights, very few people actually believe that it is a functional place to live, much less to thrive. Lots of people think it's probably haunted, and sometimes you think they're not exactly wrong. You have seen things, too, but Fallen Heights lacks any kind of violent history to provide malevolent spirits. Muhidin, the local Bomoh, is sometimes impressed that you have managed to not piss any spirit off. It pays to work with him. Farah Aziz is building a computer chamber at the base of Block D, the one closest to the staircase leading down to the parking lot. She has been harvesting stalks of bamboo from the bulukar outside of Block B and uses them to keep the reins and prying eyes off her wires. You find her sitting at a station, reading some news, with a mess of wires, fiber-optic cables, and clamps under her chair. The chair seat is made of rotan, but she has outfitted it with a telescopic base and a recycled 80s joystick, so, without moving from her chair, she can reach anything in a three-meter radius. You met Farah in university abroad, an Ivy Leaguer you hope has forgotten your cohort. Lonely JPA scholars far away from home, you latched onto each other immediately. She was a brilliant grad student in computer sciences. You were a mediocre mechanical engineering undergrad. She loved land parties, and you liked wines and cheeses. She was the daughter of a poor fisherman, and you sympathized with her because your grandfather had been kicked off his land when it was bought out for development. You never dated because you both recognized that the only thing bringing you two together was a mutual dislike of the government that provided for you, which blossomed into resentment and hatred and furious determination to fix something once you did get home. The night of graduation, which your families could not attend, you made love in a high of achievement. The next day you two made don't know and came home to carry out your federal obligations. You had thought about cutting and running, maybe applying for another scholarship in another school. You might have been able to cut free the tracking chip installed in everyone's wrist when applying for the new identification cards. You would have become persona non grata in your own country. That is the price of freedom to move around without government permits these days. Of all the things to import from the West, Farah sneered on one of the outings you had with your compatriots, microchipping people like animals, and then hormone-control nanotech some more. Dala Naktrak, the Rakyat, now also must control whether we have babies. It's free birth control, Nick replied. Might as well enjoy it while you can. Farah had punched Nick out cold in response. But you had dreams and a simmering rage inside, so you lived like a miser to afford independence after your stint as a government worker. The dreams and rage did not drive your work friends away, but the frugality did, because it is hard to maintain friendships without spending loose cash at cafes and coffee shops. To come to Bandar Ayaputa and build the place you have built. You would have been completely alone if Far had not also understood and because she is a genius, helped out in ways you never could have thought of. So how, she now asks, not even turning around to acknowledge you. 
I do you too, you reply. But the junction box is in the clear. There is a box in the jungle hidden under a bunga talong bush. It is connected to buried fiber optic cables that serve the local area with internet service. No one really uses it here, so you've hijacked a few wires to serve Farah's chamber. Rarely, Telecom, or one of its competitors, whichever now has control of the area, comes to investigate. They reroute it. You reroute it back. Will we be launching soon? Our solutions are almost optimal, you say, moving a sleeping child on a nearby rotund couch so you can sit. How long do we have to be only almost optimal? Her brows furrow with impatience. This isn't the first time you've had this conversation. No need to be so paranoid, Ken. We've been messing with their systems for so long now, and nothing has happened. Where can, you protest? You want to calculate the effects of failure? How much we can fine? And who gets how long jail time? How many of the new state inspectors they'll send to watch us? Because I have, and it is terrible. We can't take action too soon. Action or no action? You and Farah disagree on which one has more risks. She would rather move faster, strike sooner. You would rather ensure that all the hatches have been battened down, make sure everyone remains safe. No one has attempted to take an entire town off-grid before, not in the Peninsular, anyway. You know that it has been done out in Sarawak, but Sarawak did not have the same military power to enforce the laws the Peninsular government does. You model your systems after Indian ones, but every country has different conditions. Malaysians are more spread out, the cities less concentrated with people. This means less crowding, but also more police military all over. Farah accuses you of cowardice. You look at Bandar Ayaputa and think of how much worse off the people could be. They are already suffering enough, you answer. No need to make it worse. You forget why you picked this place, Farah likes to remind you. This is one of the smaller agricultural centers of the state, capable of feeding itself sustainably for years. Government food centralization processes take the labor of the local farmers and forces them to buy it back to keep from starving. Between you and Farah, you have managed to false-feed the parasite monitors that track its production capacity. Make it look like this land is just slowly dying and does not warrant further examination until true crisis mode. The Bandar is not in crisis mode yet, according to regulations, but you don't intend to wait until locals start dying to count. Chien, Farah begins with exaggerated patience. You have done the best you can. Unsek Sayyidi says that as long as the military people don't come here, whatever happens, takpaya risaula. You think internet blackout so hard to handle, is it? You scowl because she's right, and you're worried for other reasons. If the government finds out what you and Farah and pretty much all of Bandar Ayaputa have been doing, then what might they do? Even though, technically, you know you wouldn't be the only one to do so, there is Nandi in Pahang, Benkiet in Sulangar, Percy in Johor, Nur Aisha in Trunganu, several more, all working on the same thing in their own towns, all waiting for the right moment, just like you. 
Typically, everyone else is also waiting for someone to make the first move. Each of you are sure that once a single town is off-grid, the others will have an easier time of it. That would spread out the government's responses and resources, making any retaliation easier to deal with. But the first one to go faces the greatest risk of a swift and brutal response, because no one knows how closely surveillance systems are being watched. You all complain about the microchips, but between your collective experience and knowledge, no one knows how well the microchips work, and that is the most frightening thing. So hard having that weird burden of responsibility like that. If you cock up, then everyone wants to blame you. If you succeed, then everybody wants to share credit. You never even liked group work in university. Yet here you are, with a team of hackers who make forays into the government cloud, quietly stealing information here, quietly erasing information there, quietly reformatting systems everywhere else. You don't know what the others are doing with the data they pilfer, but you use it to find loopholes for the locals in dealing with the petty officials and ministry spooks who fling red tape at farmers. Farming is hard enough without even more work to do in keeping one's land away from greedy land speculators, away from officials who think they know better. At least they can't chip plants, Cox Young quipped in the early days of your get-togethers. Don't tempt fate. Nandi intoned, crossing himself. The Ministry of Agriculture has been brainstorming ways to keep track of food production on a micro scale. If they succeed, we die, man. Everybody nodded and bitched about how expensive food became since food distribution became centralized, and Kuala Lumpur, of course, to the detriment of everyone else. Now, lo, you discovered recently nanochips that monitor the movements of inert objects. You wonder how Farah finds it easy to turn over the status quo the way she does, but you suppose she doesn't have much to lose either. You are all the children of farmers, fishermen, herders, locked into place because the cost of moving is too high. You are tired of your elders paying a debt that you will carry. You are tired of people dying of hunger and illness here in a land of plenty. You swore that while the government hasn't accidentally blown up and poisoned the land just yet, you would make sure the children in your bandad will not go without food. Fada doesn't say anything because she knows you too well. Why, exactly, you are waffling like this. Why don't you go visit the Atok, she suggests. Take a rest. We can fight about this later. You don't like it when Farah gives you suggestions that are actually telling you what to do, but at the same time, you like having someone else take responsibility for your life anyway. You stomp off down the broken concrete steps and into the parking lot where your salvaged Wira sits, looking sad but serviceable. Leaving Bandar Ayaputa annoys you, because you are used to its rough surfaces, the humidity of its rooms, and the cool of trees breathing life. Your Ryura is so old it predates the current information age, but it is inorganic enough to bring up memories of your brief stint working for the government. You worked the back end, developing the framework under which the federal servers sit, all wires and smooth walls and metal racks, security cameras in every corner. You were a maintenance lackey, which might have contented you if you hadn't seen that room. 
you don't call it by its real name, which is made of obnoxious two-dollar words, all-encompassing national geography, economy, and propulsion reviewer for interstate security and cooperative efficiency. Why do they have to call it that? Peng Kiet asked. Why not just call it the Panopticon, since that's what it is? Too scary, Oswa replied. All our Western allies would scrutinize us even more. And you all burst into cynical laughter at the hypocrisy, because it was better than crying. Very unlike most government office technologies, which might as well be retro, even compared to your rudimentary work, it uses the very best, most recent technology. The ceiling is not very high, and the walls are comprised of several backlit LED touchscreens, corner to corner. There is a raised platform surrounded by computer centers that direct the other screens. During your orientation, the Minister of Security personally introduced your cohort to the functions of the room. The screens were the most sensitive you have encountered. On the largest screen, on the wall of the platform, was a map of the entire country. The map flickered to show figures, statistics, and names superimposed on the various regions. You and your new co-workers were allowed to play around with it, which still seems dubious to you, so you could understand what kind of information it kept in the government cloud. Which was, in a word, everything. Every acre of land was monitored, monetized, parceled out. Every town had its own biometric surveillance system to control and keep track of the Rakyat's movements. Every city, with its skyscrapers, fed information into the database of its commercial tenants, big businesses and small. All this information, with the briefest, lightest taps. The only thing it could not do, it seemed, was keep track of every single individual as efficiently as it hoped, which might have made you immediately revolt. Instead, you slowly burned out, driving in and out of the city, your wallet fattening as you saved up your pay. You thought you would be able to change the system from within. You were disabused of that notion almost from the get-go when they made you wear a biometric uniform at work. Then came the new, improved chips that were intended to monitor the physical health of the Rakyat. You worked twenty-hour shifts to roll that out, and every shift killed your soul a little. You thought you would work hard, rise up through the ranks, and get into decision-making. You were reminded and the way your superiors nodded and smiled and praised you but didn't advance you, that your skin color and your name made you untrustworthy. You were untrustworthy, but not in the way they thought. When you could afford it, you bought your grandparents their new house and then moved to Falem Heights, where property values plummeted so much the mortgage was easy to pay off. Farah has topped up the touch-and-go you share and you breeze through the tolls. The highways are more expensive, though not necessarily a better quality. Every bump on the road is a reminder of the sensors, keeping track of traffic. On paper, it sounds great. Got jam? The sensors could reroute traffic. Got solar power? So the nation would save on energy costs. Got car breakdown? Sensor immediately tells the first available tow truck. Got protest? Paramilitary, follow you, Percy continued the advertisement's cheery litany. Got robbery? Allah, who knows, la. But it was still safer to meet in person, traveling over the censors, than it was meeting over the cloud. 
Your grandparents live in a rare suburb close to Ampang Jaya, which used to be close to the city center, and has sort of been absorbed into the city. You sit through the traffic jams, get lost in the new flyover system, then finagle your way past the gate of the community where your family lives. The walls are new white, and the computer system at the gate scans the barcode on your car, then lowers itself to scan you, to verify that you do belong to this place. Guests have to call ahead of time. There are no random visits to any aunties or uncles here. It is a nice house, and it was very expensive. There are few privately owned homes now. Most villas are run by corporations that charge maintenance fees up the wazoo. Flats abound because former low-cost housing is too expensive to own, but they are badly managed by indifferent landlords. Inflation has soared, but it is not so bad, say the government. At least the numbers show that this is still a rich nation. Your atok is busy spraying his house plants when you enter the house. You smell the water mixed with fertilizer, so different from the waterfall. Atok turns and greets you with his generous smile. Eat already? You shake your head, and make the appropriate sound. You wait until Atok has finished pruning his many roses, which bloom twice as large as they would have at the hands of a lesser gardener. Atok is very proud of you because, besides getting the university degree, you developed the hydroponic system in his veranda. You think he should be proud of himself for making it work. His Kong Kong is verdant. The cabbage heads are as big as yours. The pak choy push out through their troughs obnoxiously, and the cucumbers colonize a not insignificant corner of the veranda, hanging low from the nets on the ceiling. He harvests several leaves, washes them in a deep sink, and pulls down a casserole bowl from the cabinet above the sink. You wish you would actually use the kitchen, and maybe you will shift the whole system inside. He only does this because he is lazy and likes raw food. Atok grew up on a farm that his family lost to housing developers. When he drove you to see it, it had been stripped of its greenery and is now a suburb. You don't know which house sits on what was once his land. All of us lost. He mourns regularly. Malay, Chinese, Indian, everyone lost. You find it hard to believe that there were Chinese farmers, but suppose anything was possible in his time. He has worked as a handyman since then. When your parents died in a car accident, he scrimped and saved for your education. He only retired after you proved you could support yourself and built him his little hydroponic farm. Atok says, "Ahma got fine yesterday." You have a mouthful of leaves when he says this and look up, conscious that you probably resemble a cow. Ha!、Huh? You know la. She plays mahjong what? Ahma loves gambling and is a firm believer that it helps circulate money into local economies. What are they going to do with all their money anyway? She would complain to you. So rich, so kutukot, got nothing to do. Their food also they don't buy. So what do they do with their money? Give poor people like me, lah. It's not terrible logic, you think. What you say after you swallow? I thought I told Ahmad to stop using that Mahjong app. The words taste bitter. Ahmad had been so proud that she made the app herself, and then it got popular. So much so the government took notice 
and since she hadn't registered it and was making bank with it, they shut it down. Atok and Ahma are, fortunately, not microchipped. That is only for certain demographics. Atok and Ahma are too old, too frail. They could die tomorrow, and that would not matter to the powers that be. But if you die tomorrow, that would be one less productive worker in the country and have to be replaced. Ahma now sails into the room. Chien, ah, she almost shrieks. Atok gets up to get more of salad. Chen, why police come here, she demands. Never one to beat around the bush, your Ahwa. Well, you stammer, because Ahwa is hard to trick. She make don't know, but she probably is aware you're as shady as her erstwhile gambling racket. Maybe because you still run your Mahjong game? Did you register your app? What register my app, Ama snaps. I never use app anymore. Please come here when I play with Ah Chao Soon and Ah Ming. I ask them why they want to find me. They say the money not my one. What not my one? I want it, what? You blink. They what? Hiya, they came to see you, actually. Ah Tuck picks up another bowl for the table. But they saw your Ah gambling with real money, ma, so she cannot find Lor. He eases himself back down. Nowadays, police so bad one, Ama complains. Push, push people like what only. They come here, and then when we say you're working, they don't believe. Your stomach drops. Your grandparents, of course, do not know what you do for a living. Suhaila, your KL contact, had set things up for you and your grandparents to live under the radar. Ostensibly, you work at a K-pop processing factory in the reconstructed Petaling area. It had seemed like a good idea at the time. You had been interviewed for a position as operations officer, and you had been shortlisted. But anyway, the K-pop factory had been super dodgy. You are ostensibly paid through direct deposit, and you ostensibly pay your taxes automatically. Suhaila handles that from her accountancy firm using software Faras team developed. You also have a hand phone, which you claim you never turn on, and anyway, your grandparents hate the phone. Of course, Far is not the only computer genius out there, and sooner or later, some hack on government payrolls would have been able to uncover the digital trail of obfuscation that she has set up. It is easier to destroy something than it is to build it. Government incompetence cannot be relied upon. While you are thinking about all this, you almost miss the rest of Amah's diatribe. And then, ah, I ask, what you mean, not my money? They say, ah, oh, madam, that money you didn't get through work or pension, ma, so not your own lore. I ask how you know, so they take the money and then they scan. Now money got nanochips some more. Ayo, I betahna. Ah, ma must have noticed your reaction on your face, because she turns to you with a serious expression. So why they look for you? You going to jail? No. Oh? Why you bohong so siplakon? What to do, I? Atok, what? You protest. Maybe something happened at my factory that I don't know. I call my boss and ask Loch. So you cannot find how much? Ahma scowls. Five hundred ringgit! You reach into your pocket for your wallet, which has unchipped banknotes. Pankayat has been working on a method to sort out the new currency nanochips. 
Until then, you've been working with old notes. And your friend, that one you were telling me the other day, one? No one does schadenfreude like your Ama. She launches into a retelling of how her friend had been caught defying a local law on burning rubbish. You laugh, let her have her moment, and move on to other subjects of interest. The sudden closure of the local wet market for another hypermart. The difficulty for neighbors' children to find work. The rise of foul-smelling fumes from beyond the walls of the community. Yet for all your diversion, you can tell that Atok and Ahma no longer trust you to tell the truth. They have always managed to live within the law, even when it is out to screw them over. They seem to stare at you a little longer, their eyes squint a little harder, as if they are trying to look right past you. You never told them your truth, because you wanted them to live out their old age unworried for you. You never thought their ignorance might lead to your undoing. When you leave, you try to remain calm as the security system scans your car and lets you out. You know it is registering your departure, and you know it is sending a signal to local police. You keep an eye out for stalking cars. You take the old roads, the ones you know do not have sensors. They are, however, a mess of one-way streets that loop around in a misguided attempt at avoiding traffic jams. You fish an old, modded Nokia from under your seat, and you call Farah. Yo? I think I'm being tailed, and I need a hantu, you tell her. Farah doesn't hang up, nor does she answer. You can hear her mouth making a few clicks. You exit a lorong into a main street. A police car flashes its lights at you. Farah! I'm working on it, she says crossly. They got new firewall. You pull over. The police officers get out of their car and approach you. One of them holds a ruggedized tablet. Nice Panasonic, you think. One of the officers taps on your window. Listen. You pull out your wallet and the piece of digitized plastic. It glitters as they run a scanner over it. You internally wince, waiting for the worst, that maybe Farah hadn't made it in on time and you're going to get hauled out. The officers are just doing their job. You can tell from the looks on their faces that they're stressed and unhappy, but not corrupt. You wonder what they would do if they didn't wear their biometric monitoring uniforms. It prevents the worst of police crime, but it also stops them from performing small mercies. One of the good effects of digitizing the nation has been to eradicate the most banal of petty bribes. Now they only happen online. They hand you your license wordlessly. No credit, the other officer tells you, looking concerned for you that you have no available money to spend. You thank them for the information and begin to drive off slowly. Everything okay? Farah shouts into the phone to get your attention. You pick up the phone. Yeah, yeah, you don't feel okay. When you pull into the parking lot of Falem, you start shaking and manage to heave yourself out of the car before vomiting onto a patch of morning glories. As you pick your way up the stairs, your mind swims with terrible possible outcomes for your Atuk and Ahma, and worry that perhaps you should have gone back to pick them up. But then what would you say to them? That they had to move again and lose everything they had worked for? That their grandchild was an anti-government rebel? Your Atuk especially would be heartbroken to leave his plants behind.
but if you didn't go back for them, if the government Hantu came for them, you stop short when you think this, because it had never been a possibility before, and now, with the project so close to fruition, it suddenly is. So how? Farah asks, but you hardly hear her. She has to turn around and see your face. You don't notice when she gets out of her chair and runs to your side. She pats your cheek. Hey, hey. If the government finds out about your work, then they would go after your grandparents. Interrogating them might be extreme, but it could happen. The house is in their name, but they might have their pensions cut off without you to send them money. And you'd have to give them up, stop visiting them at will. Of course. It is so obvious now. Even past the programs that Farah has written, past the records that Suhaila has conjured, government hackers would find Atuk and Ahma any moment, with or without chips. They have followed your movements, so they know where to look for you, and thus for them. The idea seems less righteous now that the danger to your grandparents is so real. And you're not ready, or even willing, to give them up. Your stomach seizes up with sudden fear, the fear that you've been holding back so long. When you finally register the shock of it, you hurl, but fortunately nothing comes out. You clap your hands over your mouth anyway. Farah has her arms around you now, patting your cheek and calling your name, calling you back. Your vision swims, and you let Farah lead you to the couch and sit you down. Finally, you come up for air and lean back, staring at the ceiling. It blinks with hundreds of LED lights, telling you that the operations on the servers directly upstairs are functioning smoothly. Servers that are hard to trace, off most grids, away from all known data clouds, beyond the reach of governments, built by your hands for material both salvaged and pirated. Servers armed with programs to break down, scramble, disrupt, courtesy of Fara. Servers with programs that have been tested against firewalls and workarounds. Servers ready to disseminate information to ordinary citizens on prepared food distribution centers and grassroots hospitals. Can you not cuckook cuckook like that, Elena once yelped at Nur, who went to vet school and has been working on chip removal? Why don't we have a single actual surgeon in our group? You look how much the government is paying them, then you tell me you wouldn't sell out, Nur answered. Don't worry, the GPs will be okay. Tomorrow, you say, wondering why you have to make that first move. Finally, Farah says. You nap in each other's arms that afternoon. When you wake up, Farah works with Suhaila to create another hantu for the police to follow, while you recruit the kids to help prepare a room in the complex. You fix a ramp so Ahmah can easily go down to the shop houses. The aunties seem interested in her, especially those who love Machong. She won't lack for friends. You rehearse telling your grandparents that they have to move. Again. You worry about the disruption of public services. The police response. Potential military action. You also worry about the disruption of private services. Communication blackouts, transportation issues, scrambled stock markets, potential mercenary action. 
You wonder how well the system your compatriots have built will serve those who are already failed and set aside by existing ones. You all act on a dream. You think this as you drive Atok and Ahma back to Phalam Heights. They are excited to finally see where you live. They are a lot less upset about your activities than you expected them to be. When you lead them up to the derelict building of your base, Atok keeps turning around, head swiveling as he tries to take in the scale of disguised agriculture around him, his eyes round, his smile wide. Ahma turns up her nose a bit, but it's not much different from Atok's gardening habits, she says. Good, good, Atok says every so often when he sees certain arrangements of companion planting. You get to the main computer room, where Farah is playing cards with some of the children. She gets up as soon as she sees you and your grandparents. Atok, she says. Ahma, I'm Farah. She takes your hand in hers firmly. Ahma squints at her inquiringly. I'm Chien's girlfriend. Atok looks back and forth between you and Farah, and you can't tell if he's surprised that your girlfriend is Melee or that you have a girlfriend to start with. You introduce the children in the room, and they entertain your grandparents for a while, then take Atok to a room for his afternoon nap. Ahma sticks around, interested in Farah's computers. Between you and Farah, all the calls are made to the other cells. Muhyiddin has come to witness, and he performs his own set of rituals, invoking the help of the local spirits to protect your people. Falim Heights is making the first move. You are small enough to escape government notice, but large enough to make a difference. Or so you hope. Farah utters a bismillah under her breath as both your fingers type the commands that will take your little town off the map of surveillance. On one of the monitors in that room, there's a lit-up map of the country, and your town goes dark. Within minutes, other spots on the map go dark, too. More than you expect. More than you know. Farah releases a virus that will reformat small but significant sections of data. You read once that when kings and sultans were tyrannous, farmers simply moved away. Packed up their stuff, moved to a different land, away. This was easier to do back when every inch of the land wasn't so heavily invested with monetary value, and there was no monitoring of people's movements or land use. You used to think this was rather passive, non-confrontational, maybe cowardly. Yet, human desire has always trumped whatever laws and restrictions have been placed on human nature. Tyrants must be told somehow they will be left in the morass of their own corruption. Everyone has the right to live, grow, dream, build at their own pace. Leaving, too, is resistance. Where are you now, Bandar Ayaputa? Where are you now, Falam Heights? Where are you now, Chen and Farah? You have disappeared into the dark spaces, off grids, off maps, off lists of names and numbers, off known ways of being, you have left into unmeasured space. What chaos do you wreak? Are you holding hands? All we see are Sarai swaying in the wind.
Welcome back. I really like the story's focus on some of the mundane logistics required for the elements of this resistance. The hesitation that everybody feels trying to balance urgency against preparedness is very realistic. But what I really like is that it's the human element, the need to preserve our connections, that motivation that would make the resistance worthwhile that finally clenches that this is the moment to act. It feels very true that your rage and desire to resist could develop while you're an expatriate abroad, but it's a moment with your grandparents where you see how they're being affected that makes you realize that you can't wait any longer. What caught your attention about this story? Go to the website and leave a comment, either on the story itself or on the podcast to let us know. While you're there, check out the rest of this week's content. The poem is I Am Alive by Lev Mirov. And our column is Me and Science Fiction, Whiteness Rules the Planet by Eleanor Arneson. One last note before you go. Strange Horizons is an entirely volunteer organization supported by donations from our fans and community. If you would like to support us, check out the donate link on our website. That's all for this week. Until next time, stay strange.